Okay, we'll start. Uh, first, we have a surprise visitor tonight that I'd like to introduce to you. It's not Michael Wick. Uh, okay. <laughs> He's a secret bodhisattva, you know, the other ones are open. Uh, and it's Zoge Rinpoche. Uh, it's a very high lama from Tibet uh, who's lived in uh, uh, America for a long time. Uh, has been living in the Kalmyk temples in Howell and recently in the last 15 years or so in New York. And uh, he's been kind enough to visit tonight. So I'd like you to give him a hand of welcome. And he's a very high lama in Tibet. Okay, uh, so this is the last class. We're going to cover the last regular class. You still have to come to the review class. And don't cop out of the review class, okay? Because uh, it's a really intense final, and I think you're going to need the review. All right. Uh, the most intense final. Okay, not to scare you. I always wondered, uh, people said uh, to me, if you don't understand emptiness, you'll make bad karma, and then you'll go to hell, you know? And uh, I never heard for years any good connection between karma and emptiness. You see, people would say, you have to understand emptiness. And I'd say, what's emptiness? And they'd say, everything comes from its causes, you know. And you'd say, well, okay. And then they'd say, and if you don't know that, you'll collect bad karma. And you said, like, well, I know that trees come from seeds. And I know that, you know, watermelons come from water. I know that Ben Ben & Jerry's ice cream is made in Massachusetts. And I'm... I know the factory's doing well, and I know that I can get my supplies and stuff like that. But I don't see how that's going to keep me out of hell, or, or, you know, I don't see how that's going to make me understand karma or something like that. And, and I heard all sorts of explanations about emptiness, and then I heard all sorts of explanations about karma, and I couldn't see any connection between them. And no one drew it clearly for me, and I was very frustrated. And then it took years, and then I studied more and more and more, and... Uh, then uh, in the class we had in the monastery on the perfection of wisdom, uh, there was a quotation from Maitreya, Lord Maitreya. And this comes from a book called Uttara Tantra, which is not a tantra. Okay? It's a regular old book on sutra. It's one of the five great books of Maitreya. And in a commentary to that, 
book, uh, the whole process is very, very clearly laid out. How ignorance triggers karma. How if you don't know about emptiness, you collect bad karma. How that keeps you in samsara. You know, the whole thing is laid out in six steps. And to me, it's one of the most important teachings of Buddhism. And so, I'd like it to be a cornerstone of what you teach to other people. I'd like you to learn it well tonight and pass it on to other people. I, I don't think you'll see very often a clear presentation connecting emptiness to karma. And this is it, okay? So we'll do that first. We're not going to do number one, we're going to start with number two. Okay, say it please. Dangzin. Ni. Ke. Dangzin. Ni. Ke. Okay. Dangzin means uh, the tendency to hold things as self-existent. The tendency that, to hold things as coming from their own side or as having some nature of their own. Okay, that's Dangzin Ni. Okay. Ni means those two. Two tendencies to do that. Okay. Ke means they start. They start. You can think of them basically as the tendency of holding yourself as self-existent, okay? Like Ian holds Ian to be self-existent. Uh, Dito holds Dito to be self-existent. Robin holds Robin to be self-existent, okay? That's the first kind. We call it holding the person to be self-existent. And then the second kind is holding the parts of the person to be self-existent, which can mean your body mainly, your mind, and other things around you. Okay? But the big one, the big troublemaker, is the one that's focused on yourself. Okay? All living creatures who are not arhats have this tendency. Bugs have it, 
mosquitoes have it, roaches have it, amoebas have it, okay? All living creatures who are not already reached nirvana have this tendency to see things the wrong way, okay? And this is uh, Dangjin, okay? This is the beginning of your trouble. Maitreya takes it like that. Maitreya takes you through how that causes all your problems, okay? So we're on number two. You have this tendency in this life to see things the wrong way, okay? And then I used to go around wondering how I was supposed to see things. You see what I mean? Like I wondered if I was supposed to squint one eye or I'm supposed to think Rob's not there when Rob is there or what does it mean to, to see something with an understanding of emptiness? And I used to sweat over it for years. You know, I like open a door and I look at the door and say, what am I doing wrong, you know? And how, what am I supposed to do? You know, like I grew up very much wanting to do the right thing and please my teachers and stuff. And I'm like, I'm looking at the door wrong and I don't know what I'm doing, you know? What am I doing that's wrong, you know? It doesn't feel wrong. Am I supposed to pretend the door's not there or I can put my hand through the door? Or what am I supposed to think about the door? And what am I thinking wrong about the door? You see what I mean? Uh, so we all have this tendency, and according to the highest schools of Madhyamika, you have never seen anything correctly. Okay? You're doing something all the time that's wrong. Okay? And I used to get, you know, guilt trips all the time. Not seeing things the right way. But no one could tell me clearly what am I supposed to do? You know, how am I supposed to see things? Okay? So you have this tendency in your mind to see things. Am I holding up a pen? Say yes. yes. Is that wrong? No. Of course I'm holding up a pen. Okay? But there's some other flavor or sense in your mind while you look at the pen that's wrong. You see what I mean? You have an innate tendency to think of this thing as coming from its own side, of thinking of it as being a pen by its own nature, of having the nature of being a pen from its side. There's no part of your mind that, there's no background noise in your mind that says, this pen is only my projection. This is only a cylinder that my karma is forcing me to see as a pen. You don't have that. You have the opposite. When I say this is not a pen in some way, you say, no, no, I see it as a pen. It's a pen, you know. And, and even when I prove it to you, you don't, it doesn't shake you. You see what I mean? You still think it's a pen from its own side. So we got to distinguish between what you're seeing right and what you're not seeing right. Is it a pen? Yes. If you don't believe me, come up here, I'll draw a little Hitler mustache on your face, and we'll see if it's a pen. You know, that's a test, right? Does it work? You say, of course it's a pen. So what are you seeing wrong? What is Dang Zinyi doing? It has this tendency to think of it as having a penness from its own side, when it doesn't have penness from its own side, because if it did, then rabbits and dogs and roaches and Eskimos from the 12th century who came in this room would immediately recognize it as a pen, and they don't. So the penness is not coming from this cylinder, it's coming from you. But, but your mind rebels against that idea. You don't believe that. Especially when there's emotions involved, you see? Especially when you're angry at someone. You can't imagine that this thing is coming from you, okay? And, and that's the source of all our suffering. Anyway, this is the tendency. It's not the general perception. Is this a pen? Yes, it's a pen. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. Is that a pramana? Is that a tema? Is that a valid cognition? Yes. Okay. So what am I doing wrong? All the time you're thinking that this thing has penness of its own. Okay. That the penness is emanating from the object and not from you. Okay. And you've got to get used to that. Okay. People who have not seen emptiness directly in Tibetan are sometimes called surtong. 
Tzor means this way. Tol means see. They see everything as coming this way from the object, when in truth, we're always labeling things, projecting out. We're always organizing the data into our own reality, forced to do so by our particular karma. Okay? If you have really good karma, you see this as a gold beam of light in Manjushri's hand. If you have medium karma, you see it as a pen. If you have lousy karma, you see it as a, something to chew on, and when you look down, there's paws and not hands. Okay? But really, there's just cylinders and circles and squares and colors. Okay? That's all there is. Your karma decides how you see it. Okay? The tendency to think that anything else is true about the stuff around you is dangzin, Okay? Is the tendency to see things as self-existent. Yeah? Uh, yeah, she said, but we do have our separate mind streams. By the way, is there a Michael Roach? Of course there's a Michael Roach. You're seeing a Michael Roach. Michael Roach can punch you in the nose. Come up. You try. You see what I mean? Uh, is it wrong to think there's Michael Roach in there? No, not wrong. Does he have a separate mind stream? Yes. You know, the, the only point is, is his identity something coming from him? Or are you, are you, are, is your mind forcing you to see me a certain way? You see what I mean? Is there Michael Roachness coming from me? Or did your karma, good or bad, make you see me? You see what I mean? That's, uh, that's all. It doesn't mean there's no self. Of course there's a self. So we say yu gi dot and may gi dot. Say yu gi dot, may gi dot. yu gi dot means the Michael Roach that does exist, which is the one standing up here talking. May gi dot means the Michael Roach that doesn't exist. There's no Michael Roach standing up here who's Michael Roach from his side. You are making me. Okay? You like me, you don't like me, you think I'm smart, you think I'm done, you think I'm good, you think I'm bad. That's all coming from you. I'm blank. I'm empty. Okay? I don't have any nature of my own. Everything about me is being projected by you right this moment. Okay? You want to be in a nicer place? You fix your karma. Okay? You want Michael Rose to be a better person? You fix your karma. <laughs> all right? Would I like him to be better? Yes. <laughs> I have to fix my karma. Okay? That's all. Okay, so those are the two tendencies to see that way. Why do we do that? You see, why does every living creature do that? It comes from the life before. According to Buddhism, number one, Dangzin Niki Bakchat. Okay? Say Dangzin Niki Bakchat. Dangzin Niki Bakchat. Dangzin Niki means again those two tendencies to see yourself and the world around you and your parts as being self-existent, meaning they come from their side and they are not being projected by me. I am not seeing those things because of my karma. Okay? That's those tendencies, nasty tendencies to see things as self-existent. Bhakchak means a seed in your mind for doing that, which, can't, which is a holdover from your previous life. Okay? All beings are born with that bhakchak, who have not reached nirvana, are born with that seed in their minds. And then it activates immediately upon your first perception in your mother's womb. At the moment of conception, you're already thinking things are self-existent. Okay? And that comes from seeds from your past life. That's why we all have it. Yeah? Uh, Prabhupada is asking about common, what we call shared perceptions. You see, 
Now, whether you like me or not, everybody in this room has a slightly different perception of me. Okay? Uh, but everybody in this room is perceiving me as a person. Okay? And, or as a, as a living thing. Okay? That's what we call a shared projection. Does it mean all the minds are working together? No. Does it mean that all of you have collected a similar karma to see a person up here? Yes. Okay? And if, and if two people in the room had, you know, done their tantric practice really well, they'd be seeing Manjushri up here. Okay? And, and they would both be seeing Manjushri up here. And all the other people would be seeing a human being up here. Okay? So, uh, the fact that every karma is collected individually, the fact that all, every uh, individual mind stream is projecting its own reality, doesn't mean that two people can't see a similar object, you know, can't experience a common reality. Uh, is, it, is it one reality which is being created by two people? No. It's two realities from two different people that happen to match at that moment. And if one of them practices Tantra and one doesn't, they're going to diverge again. One person will see a Manjushri, one person will see a, a normal Shmat. Okay? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Okay. He said, the basic question is this, if I can rephrase it. Is there any raw data? Or is, or is there nothing? You see what I mean? That's the question. You've been saying that there's all these, there's four cylinders and a, and a sphere and a tube up here. You know, and some people see it as a nice micro roach and some people see it as a not so nice micro roach. And, and, but what about the tube? And what about the cylinders? And what about the flesh colored ball there? You know? Are, are those also my projection? And we say, yes, they are. Okay. Does that mean there's nothing? No. Okay. Does that mean there's no base data to be interpreted? No. Just because you're projecting the base data doesn't mean you can't project it as base data. You've got to get used to that. Okay. Are you projecting the cylinders? We say when you're focusing on the cylinders, you are projecting them. When you perceive me as a person, the cylinders are there. Okay. And until you go down and examine them, you can assume that they are there. Okay? You can take it as base reality that you are interpreting. Okay? Does that base reality itself have any basis? Yeah, when you focus on it as base reality, then you're, you're organizing its parts and projecting it. You see what I mean? And so you can think of it as a microscope going up and down the layers of an onion. You know how those layers are? And, and Madhyamika says... Leave the next layer alone. Don't worry about it. You'll freak out. And, and, and by the way, when there's a bodhisattva vow not to teach emptiness to people the wrong way, this is how you can do it. Oh, there's no red, there's no blue, there's no cylinders, there's nothing. You know, go home and think about that, you know. And by the way, try to be a good person. You know, uh, you know then people get some kind of disoriented or freaked out or something. They begin to think that nothing exists or something like that. Forget it. Okay, that's not the case. Ultimately speaking, yeah, you can keep going down forever. Relatively speaking, we have to deal with what is there for in our perceptions, and we have to get enlightened in that level, and we will be projecting a tantric Buddha paradise that has base data, which is also projected, but that's no problem. You will live there, you will be eternally blissful there, and it's real. Okay, that's all.
You got to get used to that. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> Sorry? Uh, oh, we're getting to it tonight. It's, uh, I'll cover it tonight. It's called the glass of water. I'll get to it tonight. It's called the glass of water. Okay, we got to go. Uh, you do want my tray is all six, right? You don't want just two. Okay. Say you all, me all, Sulmin, Tok. One more time. You all, me all, Sulmin, Tok. You all means things that are nice. You know, you see something which is nice. Okay, an object which is nice. Me all means you see something which is not so nice. Okay, so things that look good and things that don't look good or taste good or smell good or sound good or anything, okay? The, the nice things and the bad things that you perceive. Okay. Tsulmin means wrong way. Tsulmin means the wrong way. Tok means to think of them the wrong way. Okay. Thinking of the things in your life which are nice and thinking of the things in your life which are not nice in the wrong way. It's like this. Would it be nice to have a lot of money? Yes. I mean, if you're a Buddhist, you could do good things with it, right? Uh, that's what I'd call an attractive object. You won't. Okay? Uh, is it nice to have a headache? Uh, or, or let's say, is it nice to have somebody yelling at you for something you didn't do? By the way, it reminds me. Leon yelled at me today. <laughs> He's the guy who owns 16. He never yells. Okay? He said, please don't leave the door propped open at 6th Street. He said, I don't care if you burn the place down. But there are two owners of that building, and the one that lives downstairs doesn't like the door propped open because weird people come in besides us. So, uh, <laughs> so please, please uh, respect that. And uh, he'd also like uh, all the rooms clean. That's another thing, but we'll talk about it later. First row people. The, the CD room, okay? I thought it would come yesterday. Okay. Uh, where were we? Oh, someone comes and yells at you, okay? Now, <laughs> this uh, object, one is nice, one is bad, right? And this state of mind says, it looks at those things and says, the money comes from its own side, okay? And the bad person comes from his own side. It's, 
It's holding them strongly the wrong way. Okay? It misperceives the good things in that world and it misperceives the bad things in the world. Okay? What, was, what came before that? What triggered it? You have to have this flow chart in your mind. What triggered that kind of thinking? No. The general tendency to see things as self-existent. What triggered that? The seeds for it from your past life. See, we've got a... We got a dependent origination here, okay? Uh, you have seeds in your past life from seeing things the wrong way that are still there. So the first moment in this life you start seeing things wrong again. And in particular, you think of the wrong way, in the wrong way, of things which are nice and things which are not nice, okay? What does it mean in the case of the person who's yelling at you? This person is bad. This person is bad from their side. I'm not responsible for this person being here. This person has come from bad upbringing, uh, lousy family, never got properly trained, and now they're sitting here yelling at me. You know what I mean? They don't know my real fine qualities. You know, and they're yelling at me. You know what I mean? They think I left the door open. You know what I mean? Or that I have any control over whether the door is open. <laughs> okay. All right? Like, like, like out there from their side. It's perceiving them the wrong way. In reality, what is it? A bunch of cylinders and balls. Okay? Whether, if I see it as some guy being nice to me or I see it as some guy not being nice to me, totally my fault. Okay? My karma is projecting this thing. You've got to get used to that. Have you ever been taken aside by the same person and told how wonderful you are? Yes. Okay? And that was the result of a good karma, and this is the result of a bad karma. Okay? They're just the same old balls and cylinders, and, you know, they're, they're just that. Okay? So this is thinking of good things and bad things the wrong way. Okay? By the way, in an act of anger, what I'm describing happens in about two seconds. I'm describing a process that happens like that when the boss yells at you, okay? Here's number four. And if you can describe this flow to other people, you've done a great service to them and to Buddhism. Say Dercha Shedang Ke Dercha Shedang Ke Dercha means liking things ignorantly. Shedang means disliking things ignorantly. Ke means it comes up in your heart. You start feeling that way. Okay? This is what they call anger and desire or something like that. This is the middle of the wheel of life where you have a snake and a, 
and a rooster. Okay? Uh, I don't like those translations. Uh, I didn't get angry since this morning. I didn't look at a Playboy magazine since I don't know when. Okay? I didn't have anger or desire today. But I had Duchak and Shedang all day long, every single minute of my life. The feelings of liking something and disliking something are flowing through my mind constantly. Small likes, small dislikes, small irritations, small attractions. All day long, your mind is flowing through these modes. You're always, you're almost constantly in a mode of thinking you kind of like this or you kind of don't like that. Okay? Now, is that wrong? Okay? Is that something to be avoided? Is it, is it wrong to like something and is it wrong to dislike something? Does Lord Buddha like anything? Does Lord Buddha dislike anything? Are we supposed to just sit there like neutral vegetables and not think about anything? You know, is it the culmination of Buddhist practice that you sit in a corner gazing at the wall and not thinking good or bad about anything? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Does Lord Buddha have likes and dislikes? Would Lord Buddha like to see all of us get liberated and go join him in a Buddha paradise for a beer? I, I mean, uh, two. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay. Of course he would. Uh, does he dislike the fact that people are suffering? Of course he does dislike it. So, what's wrong with liking and disliking? I said, ignorantly. Okay? Ignorantly. Okay? What's the difference? It's that sumintopa. That sumintopa. Okay? If you like something or dislike something on the basis of misunderstanding it, you're in trouble. Okay? Meaning, if you hate the boss, thinking that the boss is coming from his or her own side, then you're in trouble. That's Ducha. Sorry, Shedang. Okay? If you're out after money or out after a relationship and, and you're trying to get this thing through any kind of harmful means and not understanding that you get it by being good, then you've got desire. Then you've got stupid desire. I call it stupid liking things and stupid disliking things. Okay? Big difference. Really big difference. If you know about Dharma and you know about the laws of karma and you understand emptiness and you're trying to get rich so you can help more people and, and you do it by the intelligent Buddhist way of giving away everything you have, then that's not dumb. That's smart. That's liking something intelligently. And, and you'll pull it off. And that's what Buddhas do. And it takes a lot of capital to build up a Buddha paradise. You know? And you do it by understanding emptiness and, and collecting wealth the right way, which is by giving away everything. Okay? Uh, that's not stupid, and that's not Dirchak and Shedang. Okay? Number
Say le sak. Le sak. Le means comma. Sak means you collect it. We have just connected karma with an understanding of emptiness. To me, this is the holy grail. You know, this is the most beautiful thing in Buddhism. What you have here is, is Lord Maitreya, the next Buddha, according to, you know, Tantra already a Buddha. And you, you have him connecting emptiness to karma in this word. Laisak means you collect karma. Okay? Why? What came just before it? You want things and you don't want things in a stupid way. So you react. Okay? You say, you're stupid. I'm not stupid. I didn't leave the door open. You know? Why don't you take the thing off the door instead of complaining to me? People can't leave it open. You see what I mean? I actually thought about it. Okay. <laughs> okay? Like you want to say something back to the person. You know what I mean? And, and then already the thought itself is karma. Uh, already I did karma right you, and that's based on not understanding that this guy is created by your karma and the guy who left the door open was also created by your karma and the thing that opens the door and leaves it open was also created by your karma you want to yell at somebody go in the bathroom quietly close the door lock it look in the mirror and you know <laughs> really really okay and any other reaction is is collecting karma. Okay? Yeah? I was going to say that, like, you know, you can understand that. Then you're still going to feel into anger, right? Directly, you're saying Oh, uh, no, I'm not saying that. She said, well, you can understand that and not... Basically, she's saying you can understand that and A, not be able to practice immediately and B, are you supposed to get angry at yourself? No. Okay? How do you practice it is I call it the gap, okay? The gap. The gap means you can study all this in class on a Thursday night. Friday morning, you can walk into your office. Your boss does the same old thing, and you react the same old way. And on the way to the bathroom, 10 minutes later, you recall this lecture. And that's how long it takes at the beginning. You know, and you're still a little bit angry, and you still can't believe that you created this guy. It's still too... Disgusting to think about, you know. That I've created this guy, you know. And your, your mind rebels against the idea, you know. Uh, and then what we call the gap gets shorter. The reaction time gets shorter. You see, as you learn more and more, and as you get more and fed, more and more fed up with this life, you start to shorten the reaction time. And what happens is finally you're at a point where the anger starts down here, and you just stop because you're you're being aware and you're being mindful of emptiness. Uh, number six. So Laysak basically means you react. With the same. You yell at me, I'll yell at you. Eye for an eye. Say Korwar. Kor. Korwar. Korwar. Kor. 
Korwa, if you know, is the word in Tibetan for samsara or the circle of rebirth. Kor means you circle in the circle. Okay? You continue to circle in the circle. You can say, you perpetuate your own pain. What's the dynamic here? How does that work exactly? Boss comes in and yells at you. You yell back. Plant a seed in your own mind to see this yelling boss again. He comes back again. You yell back. Create another seed in your mind to see him again. You, he comes again. You yell back. Are you tired? I mean, yeah. Rinpoche used to say, I used to go and complain about work. And he'd say, well, just stop it. <laughs> okay. Meaning, you know, you have a choice to perpetuate it or not. Once you understand emptiness. You've just received, in my mind, one of the holiest teachings in Buddhism. Maitreya's six steps connects emptiness and karma. Okay? Very holy. And it's frustrating how, how, how rarely you hear it explained this way. You see what I mean? It's not really clear. How am I supposed to think about emptiness that gets me out of this life. You see what I mean? It's so frustrating that no one describes it clearly. So let's make sure you got it. Lung Jung. We'll Lung Jung and Lung Dok it. We'll go backwards and forwards. Okay? Uh, you are having to meet another boss. And you're... Well, let's just say that. You have to meet another boss. Where does that come from? Because you reacted wrong. You collected karma. What happened just before that? What made you collect the karma? You disliked, you disliked or liked something in a stupid way, in an ignorant way. Why did you do that? Because you perceived the nice things and the bad things around you wrongly. Why did you do that? Because I have these two tendencies to do that. Why do you have these two tendencies? Past life. When did it start? In which life did it start? There is no start. Get it? Okay. <laughs> I'll go back the other way. You got this tendency that you carried from your past life in your head. You see things as coming from their own side. What does that cause? The two tendencies to see that way in your own life. Now, what does that cause? You see good things and bad things in the wrong way. What does that cause? You like some things stupidly and you dislike other things stupidly. What does that cause? You get mad. You say something, you do something, you go after money in the wrong way, stupid way. What does that cause? That's collecting karma. And then you keep perpetuating your own problems. You, you set it up to happen again. That's the natural human reaction. That's why you're here. Yeah. Um, now, he's, uh, we have to distinguish between two things. He said, well, sometimes shooting back works. It sometimes has a good benefit to it, you know, a good reaction to it. It's not always necessarily bad. Um, you have to distinguish between, between two things. If you go into your office and the boss is standing with a pipe and hitting an employee over the head, are, are you supposed to do anything? Yeah. yeah. You know, if you go try to stop this person, even with punching him in the nose, have you necessarily collected a bad karma? No, your bodhisattva vows require you to stand up to injustice, to stand up to evil. Your, your vows require you to intervene. Put your body between 
the pipe in the other person's body. You're required to do that, okay? That's not bad karma, okay? If your motivation is to protect someone, if your motivation is to help someone, if your motivation is to prevent the boss from collecting bad karma, if you truly have compassion and, and or even just a sort of a lousy compassion at that moment, then you're collecting a good karma. You see, so it doesn't preclude forceful action, but the forceful action must be done with love and compassion. If there's, if there's a major element of anger there, you're, you're not allowed to act. Master Shantideva says, sit like a bump on a log. Stop. Stand there. Okay? It has to be coming from the right place. Okay. Exactly. You can find, and, and, but you can break the first seven non-virtues under extraordinary circumstances. You can never break the last three. Okay? The last three are mental. You can never hate somebody. You can never have a wrong view. You can never crave things. You see what I mean? Uh, but you're allowed and required under special circumstances with total knowledge and compassion to break the first seven. And then it's not breaking them. It's, a, it's an incredible virtue. Okay? That's a little delicate. Okay? Oh, yeah. 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 That's a difference. That's a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he asks about the gray areas, you know. Suppose the boss is yelling at someone, and you're not, or, or you're not quite sure if the person's trying to help somebody or hurt somebody, and you have to make a decision on the spot to do something. Uh, all the texts say within your best knowledge, to the best of your knowledge. You see what I mean? You have to react at the level you, that you are on. You know, and maybe that guy is a bodhisattva, and maybe that guy is hitting on the head with a pipe is, is the future Hitler. In 25 years, he's going to be the demon that blows up the world, and this guy knows it. But you can't, you can't deal like that. You have to deal with the level of understanding that you have of the situation at that moment. And the karma is dependent on that. Okay, the karma comes from that. Ninety-nine percent of the karma comes from your best knowledge. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, we had this argument, you know, with some German couple I know. Uh, did uh, did I create the whole world? You know, are there any other people out there, or am I just projecting everybody, you know? Uh, it's no contradiction to say that you're perceiving these beings in a certain way due to your karma, and they also are perceiving themselves in a certain way due to their karma. There's no, there's no contradiction that, in a sense, you are creating what you see, and they are also creating what they see. It's the same thing with the pen, you see what I mean? That explains common experiences, shared experiences. You, you are a shared experiencing. I'm having a perception of you, and you's having a perception of you. And there's no contradiction there. Okay? We'll talk about it later. We'll get to the glass of water. It was an important enough question that, I think it was Dharmakirti or Dignaga, wrote a book called Proving That Other People Exist. Yushin Takpa. Okay? It's an important question. It might get lonely. You know? And, uh, okay? It doesn't mean that. Okay? It doesn't mean that. There's one guy who's been very patient back there. Yeah. 
Yeah. He said an interesting thing. If the guy getting hit over the head, if it's his karma to get hit over the head, then who am I to intervene? You see what I mean? Isn't it all his fault? Isn't it all his karma? You know, this is a very, this is a famous question. This is a very, very famous reaction to that teaching. And the answer is, yeah, it is his fault that he's getting head over the head with a pipe. You know, is it at all your fault? No. Is it all his fault? Yes. Does that mean you shouldn't intervene? No. Now, but you have to follow a little further. If you intervene and you're successful, and the guy, you know, you, you do this uh, Superman thing, you know, and the pipe falls down and the guy says, I'm sorry, and it's all over. Whose fault is that? Who's the hero? Who should they give the medal? The guy that was getting hit on the head. That's his karma, okay, that you were successful. Now, what if the guy turns and hits you on the head and then hits the guy on the head? <laughs> you see what I mean? Whose karma is that? It's his karma to get hit on his head and it's your karma to get hit on your head. So, whether you're successful or not is, is up to his karma, you see. Does that mean you should just stand there and wait and never intervene and never do anything? No, not at all. Okay? You must try. For whose benefit? For yours. Because you made a promise to all sentient beings to get enlightened as fast as you can. And that's the way to do it. Now that's really hard to think about. Okay? But that has to be the motivation for your actions. Okay? Yeah? No, it's partially the guy, the guy who's hitting. It's his coming. We're going to talk about it. It's a glass of water. Okay? All right. Anyway, I don't want to detract from the fact that I just think you've got the holiest teaching in Buddhism. That connects your ignorance to your karma to getting out of here. You see what I mean? And the key to that is don't react anymore the way you used to. Understand where this stuff is coming from. And you will quickly reach nirvana. Okay? That's all. By the way, the process I just described and the understanding I just described cannot coexist in the same person at the same time. This is the key to liberation. This is why good will always win in the end. This is why all living beings will become enlightened beings. Why? Because if you, sooner or later in your endless lifetimes, if you get the explanation I just gave you, and you do something about it, that knowledge cannot coexist with anger or desire or anything else. You cannot understand these facts actively in your mind and have an emotion of anger or desire. Impossible. And that's our salvation. It's very cool. In the monastery, the last question they ask you in the debate ground when you take your geshe is, will all sentient beings achieve liberation? Will we all evolve into enlightened beings? And they say, yes. And you say, why? Sorry. And you say, nyembo tomden yubeche. Say, nyembo tomden yubeche. Okay. Nyembo tomden yubeche means, and the reason being is that wisdom always wins out over ignorance. When wisdom goes head-on-head head with ignorance, ignorance must lose. Okay? The same mind cannot entertain the understanding I've been talking about and still get angry. It's impossible. If you get in a situation strong enough, we're talking about perfection of wisdom. If you get this understanding, and the, if you're sitting there for 20 minutes because you know it takes the boss that long to get down in the elevator, 
after calling you about the order you screwed up. And you get ready with emptiness. And when he walks in the door yelling, you got your emptiness ready, you cannot get angry. It's impossible. And that's, that's our hope. That's why there's hope for us. You know, that, you know, one-on-one in a shootout, wisdom always wins. Okay. Does that mean that anger might not assert itself three seconds later? No. Because wisdom is not, at the beginning, wisdom is very uh, spotty. You know, you can't maintain it under pressure. And you have to practice. And that's your only hope. Okay? That's the only hope to get out of here. You have to be able to maintain it. You need a level of watchfulness or awareness where you can maintain it under fire for five minutes, for the whole five minutes. And it's very hard. Okay? But, but this is how you're going to get enlightened, is this thing here. Okay? Very cool. What time you Okay, we can do one more question. Let me see here. Oh, I like this one. This is called the glass of water, okay? Say chumbap. Chumbap. Special teaching from Majimika. Okay, we're skipping from first school to the fourth school and the highest part of the fourth school, Prasangika. Okay? We're going all the way up to second level, middle way school. How do they explain karma? Okay? And this question came up all over the class tonight. Half the people who asked the question were thinking about this already. This is a story in the Madhyamika, Chandakirti, famous presentation of emptiness. Okay? What's it got to do with karma? He says, look, and I always imagine the basement uh, at 39th Street. Okay? There's this dark basement, you know, and there's this light coming down on a cord. You know one of those poker lights? And there's a table, and there's three beings sitting around the table and they're playing poker, you know. Uh, one is a hungry ghost. Uh, one is a tantric deity. One is a human. Okay? So they're all sitting around this table playing poker, you know. And, uh, and this lady comes in with a glass of liquid and sets it on the table. Right in the middle. You know, I always see these three faces, you know. One is like Manjushri, you know. And one is, uh, and one is uh, a normal human, you know. And, and one is this hungry ghost, you know. And they're sitting around the table, and the, and the lady, I see this barmaid lady with a you know, thing, and she comes up and sets the liquid in the middle, okay? Glass of liquid. And simultaneously, three perceptions are going on. Forget the lady, she left already, okay? Um, <laughs> the, the hungry ghost is seeing a glass of pus and blood, because this is their karma. Any liquid they see, they see that way, okay? And the human is seeing a glass of water. And the tantric deity is seeing a, a, a glass of amrta, you know, deathless nectar. The nectar of, of deathlessness, okay? And, and this is called chumbab. You see, there is going on three realities at that moment with the same glass of liquid. Okay, you've got to get used to that. I, when I taught this in the early days, I used to keep slipping and saying, what, glass of water. But that's not fair. That's not giving... Preta rights and Deva rights. You see what I mean? We're all equal. There is three totally valid realities going on there. Okay? One being is seeing nectar, one being is seeing water, one being is seeing pus and blood. It's not as if the water is being interpreted by those beings as pus and blood. There is no water. It's a liquid. Okay? This is a teaching on emptiness. Okay? What's in the glass? A liquid. You have to say a liquid. 
No, it's a liquid. I mean, really, it's a liquid, okay? And you're not going to ask me if the liquid's really there, okay? And, uh, <laughs> and one being is perceiving water. Now, how does that happen? What's going on? The reading is in your text, okay? It's difficult. It's a difficult reading, okay? Their, their karma is each providing a certain kind of cause. It's, a, it's, an, it's, it's causing an effect. The karma is making them see something. The liquid, which is there already, is, is creating another kind of cause. You know, the nirlangi gyu of the pus is the liquid. Okay, the stuff that turns into the pus is liquid. Why does it turn into pus? Because of the kyan, meaning the factor of the karma of that person who's perceiving it. Okay? And that's the emptiness of, of all things is like that. And you have to study that. Okay? That's called chumba. Yeah? <laughs> They're all having a shared karma of liquid. Okay? They all did something to be seeing a liquid. You see? All of them in their past lives did something to be seeing a glass with something in it. Now, the content of the glass is also each one of their karma, but it's going to be, it's going to diverge. There's going to be three different. Now, are those tema or not? Are those pramana or not? Are they valid cognitions, perceptions? Yes. Valid meaning, given the situation with that particular person's mind, that's what they're going to be forced to see. And they do see it, and that's pramana. That's fine. No problem there. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Very good question, okay? Very good question. I ain't going to touch that one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, normally speaking, this couldn't happen. You see? I mean, the, the Predator couldn't be seeing uh, a human sitting down or something like that. I mean, sometimes they do say that they can see a human drinking some water. Or they say from a distance, as you read in the reading, Chumbab, the name of this chapter, is the river. You see? And it refers to you know, Pretas have this karma that from a distance they see this beautiful, clean, cool, delicious water. And then when they run up to it and they stick their face into it, suddenly it's blood and pus. You see what I mean? They have the karma to be frustrated. They have frustration karma on top of blood and pus karma. It's not as if they see blood and pus from 20 yards away. From 20 yards away it looks wonderful. And then as they get closer it changes. So I would say it's probably possible that they could see the human and see them drinking water. But the minute they grab the glass, it's full of pus and blood. Okay? Like that. Um, the reason I put that reading in there is that I, I want you to know that, that the way I'm presenting emptiness is, is scripturally founded. I'm not making something up. You don't hear this explanation very often. But that's just bad karma. Okay? <laughs> the explanation's there. In Chandakirti's text, in Maitreya's text, and it explains how karma works. See, I don't care about karma. If I don't understand how karma works, you could just as well tell me that brushing my teeth creates car accidents or something. You see what I mean? You can tell me anything. You can say killing creates killing or killing creates peace. You see what I mean? But, but until I have some logical understanding of it, until you explain to me how karma works, especially with regard to emptiness, it's all just another person's opinion, you know? Yeah, you lie, you'll get lied to. That's where all the lies you were ever told came from. Prove it. You see what I mean? It just sounds like another belief system that nobody can prove. Like that guy in the sky who made the lady from the guy's rib. Or the monkey who made it with the, what was it? The white antelope and created the Tibetan people. I mean, whichever myth you want to believe, you know. So prove it to me. You see what I mean? And 
And to me, these scriptural references are beautiful. They, they help prove it to me. The, the whole explanation I just gave helps prove it. Okay? Yeah? Uh, the liquid is providing what we call the material cause. In other words, at, at one moment there's a liquid there. At the next moment there's pus there. The liquid has turned into the pus in the same way that clay turns into a pot or in the same way that a seed grows into a tree or something like that. The content of the liquid is just de- determined by the karmic kin, the, the seed. Okay? Yeah? Oh, uh, good question, okay? How can, a, how can one liquid be simultaneously three different things? Okay? It's a really good question. And different authors have struggled with this question the same way. You know, some authors will say a third is pus, a third is nectar. I mean, you see that. The author of your text seems to be saying that, but if you study it carefully, he's not saying that. It is all nectar, it is all pus, and it is all water at the same time, and no problem. Because there is no base reality. You've got to get used to that. Okay? You've got to get used to that. It's not like it's water and someone's seeing it as pus. It's liquid. Okay? You've got to get used to that. It's not like the back of the glass as it's facing the preta is nectar or something like that. Okay? By the way, they would say it is visually until the guy takes a drink and then it's all pus. You've got to get used to that. Too. And it doesn't contradict the idea that one thing can be three contradictory things given the karma of three different levels of being. Okay? Yeah? Yeah, it's a long story. When you go down to the liquid, uh, then the left side of the liquid and the right side of the liquid are being organized into a glass of liquid by the karma of each being. So there are still parts being organized into a new whole by the karma of each being. And and that's a little complicated. We don't have to go that far, I think. Okay? I think the rest you can do in your classes. I think maybe uh, one short thing, okay? What makes a karma very powerful or not? Uh, There are four elements, okay? Let's say, she, She. Sampa, Sampa. Jorwa, Jorwa. Tartuk. Okay? These are the elements in what we call a path of action or a complete karma. And all of them should be there, okay? What is the she? The she in the act of killing is like the person you're trying to kill. She means the object. So it's got to be an object. You've got to be trying to... It's got to be somebody to kill. A living being. Okay? Sampa, I'll come back to later. Okay? It's the thought. The thought. Okay? Number three is jorwa. Jorwa means undertaking the action. Pulling the trigger. Okay? Pulling the trigger. Jorwa means undertaking the action. What's the difference between undertaking it and doing it? Yeah, she says you might not complete it. Tartuk means finalization. Okay, meaning the person dies. Okay, and in Buddhism, karmically, there's another point of there that you take ownership of the action. I'm happy he died. I did it. I would do it again if I had the chance. Okay? 
Those are all in Tartu, meaning the conclusion of the action, the finalization. There has to be, the person has to die, and you have to think, I did it, and I'm happy, okay? To, I'm talking about creating a big fat karma, what we call a karmic path, as opposed to a karma, okay? Uh, now, I promised you to, some detail on the second one, okay? And here it is. Three parts to the second one, which I call the thought, okay? We're talking how you complete a big fat karma. By the way, as you can guess, if any of these elements are missing or not fulfilled completely, then the karma is less, much less. Okay? Here we go. In the thought, there are three different parts. The first one is identification. Do you conceive of that thing as what it is? You see what I mean? For example, in an act of an abortion, uh, are you a Buddhist who already understands and believes that this is, uh, fetus is a living human being? Or are you a person who's been brought up to believe that this thing is not alive yet? This thing is not conscious yet. Okay? So to have a big, fat, 100% karma, you have to believe what? You have to cognize the thing for what it is. Okay? You have to recognize it as a living thing. If you don't, if you really believe this is not a living thing, and you have an abortion, the karma is much less. Okay? So what we call identification has to be there for a total karma, karmic path. Okay? Second one is uh, mental affliction. There has to be a mental affliction here. Okay? There has to be anger, desire, jealousy. Okay? What if you believe that the nicest thing you can do for your elderly pa parents is to kill them? The Abhidharma Kosha asked the question in the fourth chapter. Mercy killing. What's the karma of it? You know? uh, should you do it? The Abhidharma says, no, it's killing. Uh, but what about the karma of a person who truly believes they're helping this person escape pain? Is their karma as heavy? They say, no, it's not. Because they don't have a mental affliction. By the way, they have ignorance, but they don't have hatred. They're not killing out of hatred. They're killing out of compassion. So... Is it a good deed? No, it's a bad karma. Is it 100% bad karma with horrible repercussions as if all of these things were fulfilled? No. Mitigating thing, what? There's no true mental affliction of hatred or anger or desire. Okay? Yeah? If it's from their own side, then how are they collecting bad karma for it? She said, if it's from their own side, how are they collecting bad karma for it? Um, like, if you have the opinion that this is not a living being, is it then not a living being? You've got to distinguish between having an opinion about something and, and perceiving it as something. There's a difference, you see. You can, you can wish that this is a $100 bill and I give it to you, but it's not going to make it a $100 bill. You see what I mean? Uh, your karma is forcing you to see it as a certain way. What it is, is a living creature that you are forced by your karma to see as not a living creature. And that's your karma. You see what I mean? You are, your karma is forcing you to see something which is living as not living. You see what I mean? It's a subtle thing. It's a, it's a difference. There's a difference. Okay. Do you collect karma when you walk across the lawn and kill bugs and don't even know about it? Yeah. I mean, the Garjana was killed because he did that, okay? He killed a bug by accident when he was harvesting some thing. The karma of that was that he was killed. He died because of that karma. 
he was out cutting grass one day, you know, in his former life, and collected a karma because he killed an insect. He cut an insect in two. And then later he was beheaded. That's how he died. Uh, so, you know, was he aware that that particular bug had gotten cut in half? No. Uh, did he collect the karma? Yes. Why? Uh, you can call it like peripheral awareness that you might be killing them. You see what I mean? When you go out with a lawnmower and, and cover a half acre of grass and see all these things jumping around, although you don't see anybody get hit with the blade, you have a peripheral awareness that, that you are killing. Okay. All right. Mm, third one, motivation. Hang on one sec. One sec. Okay. Let me change this one. I'll, I'll take one or two questions. I got conflicting hands here. Uh, premeditation. Okay. Did you intend to kill this being? You know, were you planning it? What was your motivation? You see, I mean, did you, did you sit down and, and plan it out? This is recognized even in the law, right? Like a, a lengthy premeditation is more serious than a sudden burst of passion or something like that. Okay, to sit there for days and think about how you're going to shoot them and where you're going to shoot them and maybe they'll bleed a little bit first. And, you know, to think like that is, is total premeditation. Those are the three elements of what we call thought. Unless all three elements are there, you do not collect a full karma. Do you collect any karma? Yes, you do. Okay? But for a big, juicy, what we call fat, full karma, called karmic path, these all have to be satisfied. Okay? So what if you go into a room and you want to stab the guy, and he's put pillows under a, a blanket, and you, and you go like that, and then you run away, and you think you believe, you believe that you've killed somebody. Okay? How many are there? Did, is there a she? That's a touching one, okay? Is there, is there a guy that you thought you were killing? Yeah. Okay. Is, I, I'll say now, but I don't remember the answer in the scripture. Okay. Uh, did, you, did you recognize it for what it was? No. You see what I mean? So the karma is a little bit less. Uh, did you have a mental affliction? <laughs> yes. Uh, what was the other one? Did you have a premeditation? Yes. Did you undertake to kill? Yes. Did you complete the kill? No. Hopefully not. <laughs> Unless there was a roach under the pillow. Uh, okay, but that's all. See, those are examples. And you can play around with your own examples. But this is the study of karma. People ask me, how do you make a big karma? How do you make a little karma? This is, this is one of the main things. Why should it be interesting to you? The, rule, the principles of karma are how tantra works, okay? I'm going to tie it right up to tantra. Okay? Tantra works because of karma. You can turn... This body is like the glass of water. Never forget it. This is the same as the glass of water. If you could fix your karma, you would see this body as a tantric deity's body. And you can do it. Okay? And you have to do it. And you've got to collect these big, juicy karmas. What are they? You know, like saving life. See that this person is sick. Okay? She. Sampa. Recognize that they're a human being who needs help. Yes. Have a mental happy thought. You know, I want to save this person. Okay? Have a premeditation. I'm going to give them this meditation, this, this medicine, this medicine, this medicine. You know, undertake to do it. Go to their house. Serve them. Help them. Tartuffe. They get better, you know. And you, and you own it. You say, I did that and I'm proud of it. That's a big, fat, juicy karma. Keep that up long enough and you'll see the glass of water different. You see? That's your hope to become a tantric deity in this life. That's why it can work. Those principles can be twisted around to serve our purposes. And that's Kirim and Zogrim. 
okay? And you just have to pull it off. And you have to pull it off before you perceive this thing stopping breathing. Okay? All right? And you can. But it takes extraordinary attention to the most powerful good deeds you can find. Lord Buddha has made a list called the three types of vows. Check them every hour and a half or so. This is the way to get to a tantric body. Really, okay? Tundu. All right. Uh, one or two questions. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Let, let me answer him. He didn't have one yet. Yeah, he was, his neck was cut off, his head was cut off with a blade of grass. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a medical doctor and you're saving lives all day, it does help your karma. Will it necessarily help your karma in this lifetime? Maybe not, because there's three ripenings, right? It could come in the next or the one after. What would make it speed up? An understanding of karma and emptiness, okay? By the way, that would differentiate normal act of charity of giving medicine from the perfection of giving, you see? The difference between a bodhisattva's perfection of giving, perfection of morality, perfection of patience, you see? The difference between plain old patience and a perfection of patience is exactly what I talked about with the boss. If you understand emptiness, if you understand that this irritating guy is your projection and then your patient you see that's a totally different action that's going to get you enlightened in no time you see that's a perfection that becomes a perfection big difference from between that and plain old oh I won't get mad it's not so nice okay all right we'll stop there uh, ask your breakout teachers okay <laughs> all right how many of you want to go there for the first time? <laughs> okay. So, Geshe is going to be at Gasso for, for two big-time weekends, one on July 4th and one in the middle of October, and more news will come about that. And then you can go to Gasso and do all kinds of Dharma things, like mow the grass, oops, uh, <laughs> um, clean the kitchen. Um, what could you do there? You could get... The emptiness directly there. You could hang out there. You can meditate there. But if you go there and try to go, the chances are you'll set off the alarm and the police will come and that would be bad karma. So you can't just do that. So what do you have to do to go there and do all those great things and see emptiness directly there and all those good things? You have to come and see me or John. Uh, who's, who else can you see? Well, let's just keep it to me for right now. Come and see me. Give me your name and phone number and I'll give you my phone number, and we'll develop this wonderful relationship where I'll give you the keys or someone will be there for you when you get there and roll out the red carpet, and, and we'll do all kind of cool things. And another kind of cool thing you can do is you can teach things there and you can learn things there. You can study there, and you can bring your friends there. Okay? Yes? Yes. Okay, we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, the point is that uh, we've opened the rules up at Godstow immensely, and you can, you're welcome to go up there. Before, we did not have a tax exemption, property tax exemption from the town, and we were told by the lawyer to lay low. 
and uh, keep, our, keep quiet. And uh, now the town gave us tax exemption. They can't take it away very easily. So uh, now we can have a lot of practice there. So what I mean is I'll be going up a lot of weekends now to, uh, to hang out there and do my special projects. And then you can just come. And you can meditate. Uh, you can help out with some projects. Uh, you can paint. You can uh, sleep in, on a couch. You know, all the recognized practices. Uh, then uh, uh, you can do individual lerungs, your tantric retreats. Okay, we didn't allow that before because we didn't have the tax exemption. We were afraid somebody would come in and blah, blah, blah. And you can do that now. So you can do uh, individual retreats. You can do special programs there. You can, if there's nobody else using it and uh, it's free, you can just go up and study for the weekend or or walk around. It's 100 acres of forest and grass and uh, ponds and things like that. So if you like fresh air, which I don't particularly care about it, but uh, you can go, okay? And you'll be very welcome to go. And there's no big hassles. We take away all, we took away all the bureaucracy of it, okay? Uh, okay, very shortly. I can't think, I had like three things to say, but I don't remember about uh, announcement types of stuff. Of course, Rinpoche is having his offering uh, graciously the tantric initiation in June. And if you're interested in that, uh, talk to, my, I'd say Michael Wick or Aura, or, but I, I need to get the list and talk to him before, uh, before too long, okay? Uh, and then, of course, he's teaching starting Sunday the April 18th, and you really should go. And it's easy to go. You go to the Port Authority, you get on a bus, you get off, the temple's right there. And uh, the, the buses go every half hour. I did it for 16 years, I can tell you. And, uh, you know, and he's a great, great, great lama. And you won't, there are no lamas of that caliber left. And uh, it's a great blessing. And then that generation is passing. So it's important to, to, to get that connection with him. Okay? Uh, the, the thing I'd like to talk about tonight that relates to ACI is how the classes are conducted. Meaning, uh, yeah. I don't remember the exact dates, but this, I believe it's the first and third weekends in June or something like that. Yeah, first and third weekends in June. Okay. Uh, I'd like to talk about a little strategy. You know, my dream is that uh, you guys start your own little uh, operations going. You know, I saw this movie about uh, John Gotti, and I was really impressed with how they split up the territory. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, we don't have any operation in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, what I mean is, uh, think about it, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the purpose of these classes is that you become a teacher. And, and I would, we have a guy named Sky and his wife from, uh, was it Yonkers or something? Nyack. And they, they started a little center and they put up flyers and three people came and they taught them how to meditate, and now it's about 35, 40 people, and they have a very strong group now, uh, and it's going really well. And they have the same classes that you had. There's a group in Australia, a man and a wife, who uh, have already done a Diamond Cutter Sutra course, and now they're on another course. I forget which one. Principal Teachings course, and they're doing great, and it's about 15 students in a little tiny town in a, on, on the ocean in Australia, and and a lady came up to me the other day and said, I'm from your Brooklyn Center. And I said, I don't have a center in Brooklyn. She says, yes, you do, but you didn't know about it. And, you know, and uh, 
I like it, you know. I, I think it's great. I just want to talk about some, some ideas about how to do it, okay? One is uh, don't worry about how many people come. Don't judge your, dis- your success by how many people there are. It doesn't matter, okay? Uh, to save one person's mental continuum uh, from a hell realm or something like that, that's okay. That's worth some of your time. You know what I mean? Okay? And it's worth losing some money on, too, you know, because that's another thing about starting a Dharma Center. Uh, the funder is going to be you, and it's going to be your living room and your cookies and your tea and your bathroom that you have to clean up afterwards, okay? And accept it. That's a fact of life. That's the Dharma business, you know? The reason students come to you is they want to learn about correct behavior. So by definition, they don't have correct behavior. And uh, you'll be washing the bathroom for some time. And uh, they won't contribute for a while. And you'll be financing everything for some time. You know what I mean? And then you'll even have a few students who will criticize you or say bad things about you or blah, blah, blah. And you have to say, that's okay. You can, that's part of, that goes with the territory, okay? But uh, be happy to start with two or three people. When we started this classes uh, on 39th Street, uh, we bought enough furniture to fit in a Honda with two people. And uh, that was six chairs and one little table. And that was the first uh, class furniture. And don't, don't think it has to be some grand thing, okay? Jetson Kappa started with one student, you know? And that's the way it goes. So, something modest. And what I've learned uh, teaching in New York for like, I don't know, 20 years, is make it a distinct start and a distinct end. Don't let a class go on forever. Okay, say we're going to have six classes or we're going to have eight classes or we're going to have ten classes and then you're all going to go home and rest for a month or something like that. You know, human beings need a beginning and human beings need an end. And uh, don't let a Dharma class go on interminably until everybody gets exhausted or stops coming. Okay, then uh, at the beginning you can't make the attendance too strict or nobody will come. So loosen it up at the beginning and then after they're hooked, then uh, crack down on them, okay? Uh, all right? As soon as you can, uh, institute some kind of feedback. You see, like uh, homework or something like that. You see, there are hundreds of Dharma events going on in this city every year and classes. Uh, but it's my experience that until I required people to do quizzes or homeworks, nobody learned anything. You know, nobody retained anything. The day after they left, they couldn't tell you what the lecture was about. You know what I mean? And I think it's very important to have those, uh, to have some kind of structure like that, where the where the person has to has to give back something, has to show that they know the material, and people want to. You see, I mean, don't think you're torturing them. People want to progress. People want to know that they're making progress. People want a sense of knowing that they're learning something. You see what I mean? And in the monastery, you're tested constantly. Every night, you go to debate, and you're tested. And uh, every day, you, you, you're asked by your teacher. They don't just teach. They, like, yell questions at the students, and they have to respond like Marines in boot camp, you know? And you hear this. You walk down the street in the monastery, and you hear, you know, you hear these. And, you know, they're like, students are yelling back at teachers all over the monastery. It's a very weird experience. Like, you walk down, and it sounds like people fighting in each room, you know. And it's the daily classes going on in the teacher's room. So, so don't be afraid to test them. People don't like quizzes. People will fight you about it. People won't bring them. People won't do them. But they really do want them. Because they want, they want a feeling of 
making real progress. So give them a chance to make real progress. My boss at work used to call it bowling theory. And he said, if you don't give people feedback about how they're doing, then it's like telling someone to roll balls, but covering the thing with a sheet so they can't tell how many pins they're hitting. And then they get depressed. They they feel like they're not making any progress. Um, And don't be afraid to challenge uh, Americans. I think, uh, don't think you have to teach the same old thing every time and keep rehashing the same old thing. I think I've seen Dharma centers where they just kept doing the same basic stuff over and over again, and people get bored, and people stop coming. The other extreme is to throw in so much foreign language stuff that no one can, no one really understands what's going on. I mean, it's good to reference it to the original text. It's good to have the foreign language available for those who wish to study it. But make sure you speak in common, in plain English, or you'll lose half the people, and you'll never know it. They'll come once and they won't come back, you know. And Dharma itself is so difficult that it's like jumping over hurdles to get to, to an understanding of emptiness. And when you throw in foreign words and foreign expressions and weird English words, you're putting additional obstacles for them to jump over. And some people won't make it. You know what I mean? Some people will leave. The third time you say the sthanas of the dhatus in the karma dhatu in the, in the Abhidhamma Kosha sthana, you know, and then, you, then they'll say, this is too much. You know, it'll be one more obstacle in the way that was not necessary, you know. It's hard enough to reach an understanding of dharma without having to jump over uh, 14 Sanskrit words and 35 Tibetan words, you know. Use the Tibetan to impress them, and then they'll believe you that you're authentic, you see. But don't make it an obstacle for them. You see, I mean, don't, don't require that they have to spout back all this stuff. In, in 50 years from now, nobody will use those things. You see what I mean? Uh, it'll all be in English. And the commentaries, 100 years from now, will all be in English. And they won't study Tibetan commentaries. How many Sanskrit commentaries are studied in Tibet now? In Sanskrit? I mean, none. How many were studied in Jatokaba's time? None. Okay? And, you know, it'll come here too. So don't, don't put these obstacles in their way that, that's not necessary, okay? Uh, make things spelled like the way an American can pronounce them, not Bodhicitta, okay? It's Bodhicitta, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. I mean, if you have to use a foreign word, at least give them, give people some help, you know? Don't assume that all the people in your class are going to know the word samsara, bodhisattva, buddha, tara. Assume they don't know anything, you know? Uh, I see a lot of teachers, they just don't remember the day they started, and they didn't know any of those words. And, and when, I remember when I went to Dharamsala, I got off the bus, I went straight into class, and it was bodhicitta, arya, arhat, bodhisattvas, you know, all these words, I had no idea what they meant. And don't, don't uh, torture them, okay? Remember what you were like before you came into class. Remember what it was like to come into a class. And don't, don't uh, trip them up with all these things that, try to be sensitive to how, to how it is for them. Okay, uh, have some authentic readings ready for them. Have something they can take home. Have something that's a package. You know, don't just uh, teach a class and let them go home and forget it all. There should be some kind of notebook or something that they can take home because they need to pass it on to the next generation. So you don't just teach a class and, and go through it and say, okay, good luck, see you later. You know, give them something to take home that they can use to, to help the next generation of students. You know, a couple of things happen when you do that. The authentic lineage gets passed down. Uh, unauthentic lineages don't get inserted because you didn't give them anything. You see what I mean? So these are 
are the benefits. The, the true lineage keeps, keeps going on like that. So, so take the time to prepare the class beforehand. I think a lot of people who get into trying to teach something don't take enough time to prepare for things that the students are going to need. And they think they don't have to because it's free. You know, now, if I was getting a $60,000 salary for being a professor here, and you know, if I had the Board of Regents was going to check me to see if I gave out materials, then I would take the time. But this is, hey, this is just a Dharma class. I'm not charging these guys anything. Why should I work that hard? You know what I mean? That's a bad attitude. You see? You have a bigger responsibility than all those college professors who work their butts off. You see what I mean? You have a much bigger responsibility. And the fact that it's not a degree or that they're not getting uh, grades that are going to be sent home to mom or dad or, you know, or the fact that they're not paying you, uh, it should have no relevancy on how, how, relevance on how hard you try. You know, you should treat it professionally, and the classes should be done professionally, and you should take the time to prepare them well, even if only two people show up, okay? And it always starts like that. And then as you gain more experience and like that, then it'll start to grow, okay? But, but treat it uh, seriously, and treat it professionally, and, and make it all, uh, make it ready for the people. When they walk in, they get something very authentic, and something pure, and then, as we said last week, forget the money, okay? Take the loss yourself. You know, take the loss yourself, okay? <laughs> Financially. For a while, when you start your center, it's going to be like that, okay? And I, and I encourage you to do it, okay? I encourage you to think about uh, the process of eventually starting something. Don't get into big debts. Don't rent, you know, don't go buy a place and put up signs and stuff like that. Run it organically. Run it from the inside. Run it on the cheap, you know, uh, at the beginning. Do it in your living room, okay? Uh, and make it regular, but give them breaks. You see what I mean? Do it for a specific amount of time, and then stop. And give people time to digest, okay? That's important, too, okay? That's something I've, I've noticed about the classes, okay? Uh, we'll stop there, do some prayer, okay? Thank you.